The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, the high, the high point of our worship is to hear your voice, to believe you. Lord, it's your word that is powerful, that changes the very fabric of who we are, how we see the world. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would be with us. Help us see what you want us to see in this passage. Help me to teach it faithfully and clearly. Lord, hit our hearts, hit our minds. Uh, and most of all, best of all, help us just treasure Jesus, his power and his mercy towards us and respond to him appropriately. We pray this for his glory. Amen. So we're continuing our study through the gospel of Mark, and we come to, it really is an intriguing story, isn't it? Um, on the one hand, it's just incredible. It's fascinating. It's colorful. On the other hand, I'm afraid at first glance, you might think this doesn't seem to have anything to do with my everyday life. It seems almost too fantastic. So let's ask, why did, why did Mark put this account in here? Because Mark's the smallest gospel, right? You've seen, he's, he's pretty choosy as to what he puts in here or not. And then he gives this story quite a bit of space, a lot of space to this story. Why is it in here? Well, we take a step back and remember Mark's purpose in writing this gospel. What would you say his purpose has been if you've been with us the last several weeks? I think his purpose is he wants to tell us and then show us who Jesus is so that we'll respond to Jesus appropriately. That's what he's doing. He's telling us and showing us who Jesus is. Mark is continually in the business of answering these questions. Who is Jesus? What did he really come to do? How should I respond to him? With that in mind, we realize this passage is not providing a lesson on how to do exorcisms. Um, this passage is not a discussion on the ethics of pig farming or pig harvesting. No, this passage is, if you will, like another portrait of Jesus. It's a display of Jesus. But even more, if you think of the idea of a portrait, is a portrait with a very dark background, a, a harsh background. Because this is a portrait of Jesus, I think, painted on the backdrop of the reality of evil. The backdrop of the reality of evil. You read the Bible, you'll find that the Bible is probably more honest than you want it to be when it comes to the reality and the pervasiveness of evil. And, and think just for a moment of some of the themes you may have heard in, in this story today. There's violence. There's horrible loneliness. There's alienation from others. In this passage, there's self-loathing that leads to self-harm. There's groaning from overwhelming anguish. There's, there's bondage. There's despair. There's fear. These are the realities of our world, aren't they? Some would say these things are growing and growing 
even today in this country. And we're forced to admit evil and its brokenness can be very, very dark and is very, very real. So I think here's the question. What are we, what are we supposed to see about Jesus in the, with the backdrop of the reality of evil? What are we supposed to see about him? How should we respond to him as people who live in an evil world? Well, there's four scenes, I think, with four points. Number one, we're going to think about the dark reality. Scene 2.2 is going to be the true authority. Number three will be incredible mercy. And then number four, your story. Dark reality, true authority, incredible mercy, your story. Dark reality, we start kind of scene one of the story, verses one to five. If you were here last week, you, uh, you encountered the story of Jesus and his disciples on the lake. It's quite the story. Uh, but Jesus said, we're going to cross. And, and they did. They made it. They crossed. And as they give out, get out of the boat, the action doesn't stop. I mean, put, this, put these passages of Mark together. And this was just the craziest two days. The action doesn't stop. As soon as you're mooring this boat, can you imagine? I mean, you have to use your imagination a little bit. Imagine the most terrifying man you can think of raging towards you. He's naked. He's mentally unhinged. He's streaming, or excuse me, screaming, and he is ridiculously strong. That's the setting. That's the situation. Mark gives us some background. What do we know about this man? He's controlled by what Mark calls an unclean spirit. That word unclean that gets at something, doesn't it? Defiled, corrupting, dirty. Of course, he's possessed by a demon. We understand that. It's a rebellious fallen angel. And, and here's what we know. Demons hate God. They hate God's creation. They hate people made in God's image. And, and all they want to do, they're unclean. They want to corrupt. They want to destroy you find out later what the demon calls himself. Did you catch that? What's his name? Legion. That's a scary name because that's a Roman term for a battalion of soldiers of five to 6,000, perhaps. A lot. And so it reminds you of the, the tyranny and the power of Rome, controlling, dominating. And yet this man has that experience on the inside. We can't fathom, really, what his life is like. Thousands of demons? And, and look at the effect on his life. He's completely alone. Where does he live? He lives in the tombs. He would be, these would be kind of dug into the, into the hills. And that's where he lives. He's alone. He's cut off. He's perverted and violent. He's naked. He's doing some things. We don't know what they are, probably mercifully, that make it to where the community thinks he needs to be bound. And yet, most likely due to this demonic influence, he has this superhuman physical strength. They can't bind him. They can't subdue him. He's powerful. And yet, guess what else he is? He's miserable. He's groaning. He's cutting himself. So Mark is showing us this horrible picture of a man whose very humanity is coming undone, and he's hopeless. 
There's nothing he can do. There's nothing his community can do. The best they can do is tell their kids, don't be walking over by those tombs. Stay away from that place. But I think here we are forced to think a little bit about the reality of evil. I'm I'm sure Mark is showing us more than just, hey, back in the ancient world once a guy was possessed. There's far more than that here. We're forced to think about the reality of evil. And that's an interesting conversation in our cultural moment. The world we live in, the culture we're a part of, wouldn't you say it doubts the reality of Satan? Doubts the reality of the devil? That's kind of fantastical, mythological, they might say. And even though they have an agreement, yeah, there's something out there called evil, isn't it kind of something we can take care of ourselves? Isn't that the thought? I mean, most people believe in evil in some form, right? It's an interesting conversation. What if, what if you said to your friend, well, define, t- define evil for me. What is evil? How would you define it? I, I looked it up in the dictionary. Something profoundly immoral and wicked. So if you're okay with that definition, immoral and wicked. So I guess we could say evil is something that ought not to be. Like, for instance, this man in the story He shouldn't be like this, right? This is awful. This is wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what we say about evil. It's it's very interesting then because in order to have any real understanding of evil, if evil is the way it's not supposed to be, well, then what does that strongly infer? There is a standard, a good design of the way things are supposed to be. There's a good. Evil's parasitic. Good is just fine without evil. God was eternally good before evil. He will be eternally good forever. Evil will end. Evil needs good. Evil has to find some good and corrupt. But we see even in just thinking about evil, agreeing that there is such a thing, it proves there's a way things ought to be. There is a standard. There is a design. And then back to our cultural moment, the way we think, we don't exactly like the idea of an overarching good design, do we, that is a standard above all of us? That's, that's not exactly a popular idea in today's world. And then the idea of a literal personal devil, oh, people think that's ridiculous. Instead, our cultural moment, it seems to me, it likes to think we have power to control evil. So what do we do with it? We shrink evil down to a psychological problem. Now, is there a grain of truth in that? Psychological problems, for sure. But is it only a psychological problem? Can you just counsel or medicate evil away? Or we shrink evil, evil down to an educational problem. Well, we just need to re-educate people. If people were just educated, we could, we could eradicate evil. Really? Aren't some of the worst tyrants ever super highly educated people? I mean, it's a grain of truth, but it's not nearly enough. Or we shrink evil down to like a progress problem. We'll evolve out of it or protest out of it or fund a program out of it. We can do it. We'll figure it out. A grain of truth. I mean, those things could make a difference, I guess. Not nearly enough. I think of World War I as a great job of displaying humanity's naive optimism regarding evil. Do you remember what World War I was called? The war to end all wars. Wow. Just give us, what, 20, 30 years? 
and we're rolling out the Holocaust. How do you, how do you explain evil like that? I mean, you, if we saw the evil just happening today, we would all just, we would come undone. We would melt. We'd be ruined. We couldn't handle it. How do you explain it? Can it really be explained only by a psychological or educational progress sort of problem? And is it really, can we in our strength, if we could take care of the evil problem, wouldn't we have done it by now? So you realize this text is showing us just a picture of what the Bible is always giving us. It's the honest truth. Evil is real. In fact, Satan is real. Satan is real. There is an evil being who loves to inspire evil. He's an enemy. He's after us. And you know, usually it doesn't look like the story in Mark 5. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, the apostle there says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So what does he usually like to look like? He's a nice guy and just kind of an academic. Uh, he's good, he's intellectual, he's moral, he's religious. He likes false teaching. Uh, anybody see the movie Usual Suspects? Great line in there. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he did not exist. And yet, in our story today, we get to see kind of his true colors. And just remembering some themes from the rest of the Bible and looking some of the some of the details of our text today, I think we see some of how evil works. Number one, Satan entices. He entices. We, we know that with that fundamental temptation in Genesis 3. Satan entices, right? He causes a doubt. God's not good, his word's not true. But man, if you just had what God said not to take, you'd really live the high life. You'd be happy. If you just pushed God to the side and went over here instead, you'd be happy. He entices. You know, we can, we can only wonder about the, the illustration of this man. We, we have no idea what his life was like, but it is, it is kind of profound. Remember, he once was a little sweet baby in his mother's arms. Um, we know from this text he used to have friends because Jesus sends him back to them. So at some point, in some way, he had a, a life. And, and somehow it was grievously lost. Presumably he made some choices. He went a certain way. He wanted something. Satan entices. Satan also enslaves. Verse 3, I think, is a little haunting. It says of this man, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. What's, what's interesting about that word, anymore? In some crazy way, his um, demonic influence or his strength in this way is growing. He's moving in a certain direction with this, somehow, some way. And so you think, you know, he's, he's violent. His anger, his strength is growing in some way. And we don't know any of the details, right? But in some way, I think we can think he's leaning into this somehow. He, he wants it in a way. He wants to control. He wants to dominate or get revenge or whatever he is he's after. He's leaning into this somehow. But look, as his power in this way grows, what else is growing? 
his alienation. Verse five, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Oh, I think there's something here, don't you? It's like he sold his soul somehow and the price was high and and he had a, a, a benefit in one way. But in another way, he's coming apart. And, and so this is an extreme and terrible example of how Satan ex- enslaves. But let's think about things that are maybe more our neighborhood. Think about something like pornography. Something like pornography. There's a, there's a power or a pleasure that people want. I want to see, I want to taste, I want to experience, I want, I want the thrill, right? It's like a drug. I want that. And yet, we know on the flip side of that, it's darkness, alienation, despair, loneliness, corrupting relationships, not just to mention the, the system of what that does to people involved in it. Um, so there's this, there's this trade, right? I'm going to sell out for this thing, and I get this power or this pleasure, but at the same time I move into that power or that pleasure or whatever, I move into death and brokenness and lostness and loneliness. Addictions like that, revenge is like that, control is like that, or even just living for money. Honestly, I think what this text is saying, living for anything other than Jesus is like that. Living for anything other than Jesus is like that. You're moving into some power, some pleasure, some goal, some idolatry, and, it, and you're, you're feeling the benefits of that in one way, but in another way, there's an increasing lostness, an increasing brokenness. Satan entices, he enslaves. This is an important idea I think we should all take note of. Look at Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Let's keep that up there for a minute. Let's think about that. Do you see what the apostles saying? Is anyone truly autonomously free? Or are you always a slave to something? That's what he's saying. You're always a slave to something. I, I don't know if uh, any of you watch the Grammys. I don't think anybody does anymore. But evidently, there's, a, there's that one song. I didn't watch the whole thing. I don't recommend it. But there's that one song by the artist called Unholy, right? And it got pressed because he's literally trying to dress up like the devil. And people are like bowing to him and everything. And the song celebrates utter autonomy in the realm of sexuality. I'm going to be unholy with my sexuality. And so, you know, as, as they're celebrating this kind of idea of Satan, and Satan is just here representing my, my unhinged freedom. I do as I please. I follow my own desires. I couldn't help see the irony of the cages on stage with sexualized women inside of them. It's almost like our world can't help it. Look, we're, we're, what a parable. We're chasing freedom 
autonomous freedom. I'll do what I want with myself. And even there, like almost accidentally, we're admitting we're in a cage. We've put others in cages. That's what Satan loves to do. He entices, he enslaves, and then he undoes. And so Mark is showing us someone in this passage who's nearly undone, right? His very sense of personhood is undone. And presumably this man, I mean, we know he was a son. He may have been a brother. Maybe he was a father or a husband or a neighbor or a friend. All of those things he was supposed to be. What is he now? He's more like a monster. It's come apart. Satan entices, enslaves, undoes. That's what evil likes to do. There is a personal force of evil who draws us in, entices, enslaves, undoes. And guess what? We're probably not all possessed, but we have all been enslaved. You think that's true? Think of the Apostle Paul, okay? You, and you remember his life and, and, and his sin, what he came out of. He was not a Satan worshiper, per se. He was a, a leader of Pharisees, which is, I mean, he is all in on the Bible. He is all in on monotheism. He's memorized scriptures. He's as religious and law-following as anyone who has ever walked the planet. Look how he describes himself and everyone. This is Ephesians 2. He's going to include himself. Look what he says. And you were dead. Now, he's, he's talking to a church, and, and the church in Ephesus is a healthy church. But, but what does he say about this healthy church? You were what? Dead. Could he say that in this room? You bet he could say that in this room. You were dead. Now, were you a corpse dead? No. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Key phrase for us here, following the course of this world, following what? The prince of the power of the air. That's, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Look at verse three. Among whom, what does he now say? We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see what Paul is saying? Even when I was a legalistic Pharisee, and I would have said explicitly that I hate Satan, guess who I was following, Paul says? I was following Satan. Because anything that isn't devotion to and allegiance to God by grace through faith is deception, it's false, and Satan loves it. So the point of bringing all that up is the dark backdrop with this dark reality of evil shows us something. Is, is Satan real? Yes. Have we followed his enticement in, in enslaving, undoing. Yes. Can we save ourselves? No. On our own, we are as hopeless as that demoniac on that hill. We need a savior. And Gus, who just got off the boat. Now we see the ultimate authority. 
Mark 5 or 6. When he, the demoniac, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. I just, I just want to say that's always a good move. He ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? What? You get an incredible window into spiritual reality here. And just kind of almost backwards, but very strong and compelling evidence of who Jesus is. In the beginning of Mark, Mark tells you who Jesus is, but none of the characters get it. Jesus' own disciples don't get it. The only people who really know who Jesus is through most of the book, who are they? Demons. The demons know what no one else does. I mean, even the way this passage is working. Do you see how the last passage ended, Mark 4, 41? The disciples are filled with great fear and say to one another, who then is this? Who is Jesus? And they find the answer from the, they were not looking for, they were not looking for the answer from this source. The naked raving lunatic man says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, the demons know, and they've known since their own creation, they know exactly who Jesus is. They panic when he's in their presence. They're undone in his presence. He's the son of the most high God. So ironic, all these stories. It's so beautiful how Mark puts it together. The city was terrified of the man with the demons. The demons are terrified of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew adds another detail to what the demons say. Look at Matthew 8, 29. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? Well, demons know there is a time coming. There's this time, generally speaking, and that time. And what do they know Jesus is going to do at some point, at some time? He's going to torment them. He's going to end their work. He's going to put them in hell. He's going to judge them. That time is coming, but they're kind of, they're taken aback. It's not that time, but here you are. You're messing with us and what you're doing. What's going on? But we just see what, do you see just into this, this small window into the spiritual world? What are the demons absolutely sure of? They know who Jesus is and they know he's in complete and total control. He is the ultimate authority. And so I know you have many questions and I have some too. The text doesn't tell us everything we want to know. But just looking at verses 10 to 13, they beg him that they won't have to leave the country. I don't know why, but pay attention to this. How do they talk to him? They beg him. So, so is the nature of good and evil, like good and evil, yin and yang, 50-50, we're hoping it all comes out all right? Evil might be as strong as good? Or is it more like, Ultimate evil has to beg ultimate good for permission to do anything right now. That's what the Bible's telling you. This is ultimate authority. The demons have to beg Jesus. 
And then they do what he says when he says it. Now, it's really strange, right? What are they asked to do? Can we go to the pigs? I know you have lots of questions. I don't have a whole lot of answers. I'll give you one answer. He gives them permission, right? He gives the demons permission, and they, run, they go into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? 2,000, we're told. Run off a cliff into the sea and die. You know, this is crazy. I've never heard of anything like this. But you know, one thing it does, imagine, imagine you're watching, you're a little scared of this guy, but it's just two people talking, right? What's your name? Legion, where many? You're like, okay, you know, you have some problems. Can we go to the pigs? Okay. And then 2,000 pigs run off a cliff into the ocean. Exactly. I can see it in some of your faces. You know what this is? It's proof. It's evidence. It shows us four things. These evil forces are real. It shows us these evil forces destroy. It shows us these evil forces will one day be destroyed. And fourth and most importantly, it shows us Jesus is the only one with the power and authority to conquer evil. He's the ultimate authority. But there's so much more than that. Verse 14. Now we see incredible mercy. The herdsmen flee and tell it in the city and the country and all the peoples came to see what had happened. Now, you know, if, you're, if you're pondering these herdsmen, they're just kicking it, right? I guess they, they're, they're watching out in case crazy man comes. Uh, but they're with their pigs. And, oh, crazy man is talking to this guy who just came out of a boat. And then your pigs that you're watching, I'll run and jump off a cliff. And, you know, this is not a story that's going to age well, right? You can't just sit on this for a week. Because the owners of the pigs are going to come and be like, where are my pigs? And at that point, you can't just be like, demons went into the pigs. Yeah, right. So you got you to tell this now, right? Plus, it's crazy. You got to tell this now. And you go and you tell everybody, all the pigs just ran off a cliff and died. What? And they, they run over, and here's the greatest evidence of all. Look at verse 15. It is so incredibly beautiful. They came to Jesus, and what do they see? They see the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there. First of all, he's sitting. What does that show you? It's at peace. It's resting. It's okay. He's clothed. There's a sense of dignity again, sense of belonging in his right mind. He's been put back together. He's been restored. But did you see the response of the townsfolks right there in 15? They see all this. What do they do? They're afraid. Skeptics love to say that people invent religion to calm their fears. You ever heard of that? Well, your religion is just a crutch. And in some cases, that's probably true. 
but it's not with Jesus. Do you see what Mark's shown us a couple times? The disciples, were they afraid of that storm on the lake? Yeah. And then Jesus calms the storm with a word, and after that, are they just like, hey, sweet, let's kick it. No. Now they're terrified. They're terrified of Jesus. Who is this man? I don't don't like somebody that powerful next to me. Same thing again. The community was terrified of the demoniac, and now he's fine. And you could, I guess we could imagine them saying, oh, there's nothing to be scared of anymore. He's fine. No, how do they feel now? They're terrified because of the power of Jesus. People did not invent Christianity to calm their fears. If you've never been a little bit afraid of Jesus, I don't think you've quite encountered him yet. He's the son of God. He's in charge of the weather. He's not under the control of our preferences or our desires. Doesn't he allow some horrible things to happen in life according to his purposes? He has authority over evil. And that can be very comforting when evil's against you. But what about when you realize that evil is in you? In Revelation, there's a section where, where unbelievers actually say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. You'd rather be in an avalanche than meet Jesus as an unrepentant sinner? That's a scary thing indeed. But there's something more to see, and we really miss the whole point if we don't see this. Because if you only see Jesus' holy power, you'll run from him. You know you don't belong. You can't belong. You might believe in him, but you won't love him. You know what you need to see? You need to see his mercy, his incredible mercy. Now, I'm told some scholars are really concerned about the moral, the, the moral aspect of Jesus letting 2,000 pigs die. When I read that, that didn't trouble me. I don't know. He's the son of God. He made everything. Whose pigs are they? They're his pigs. You just think of the context of this story. Jesus is going to get it. He got in the boat. Crazy story you looked at last week. He gets here. And then what's he going to do after this story? He's going to get in the boat and go back. What was the whole point of this trip? It was to find this one man. This one lost, evil, broken, hopeless, undeserving, dumpster fire of a man. Jesus went all this way to find that man. And if Jesus has to ditch 2,000 pigs to show mercy to this man, so be it. Jesus, Jesus will go a long way to save his people. Have you noticed? He'll go a long way. Because his restoration of this evil, un, undeserving man has only just begun. Because where's he going to go soon? He's going to go to a cross. For this man, he's going to go to a cross for you 
and for me. Oh, nobody looks like Jesus, especially in the backdrop of evil. The only one who wasn't evil. Coming for us, we who have been evil, the undeserving, and showing us mercy, just endless mercy. Look how Colossians puts this. Jesus was undone so this man could be made whole. A couple, couple sections from Colossians that just kind of pin this down. Colossians 1.13. The Father has delivered us. We have put our faith in Christ from what? The domain of darkness. That's where we were before Christ. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have what? Redemption. Jesus bought us with his blood, forgave forgave us of all our sins. Or look at chapter two, verse 13. And you, here it is again, you who were what? Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What has God done for you through Christ? God made alive together with him. When you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, God unites you to Jesus. You are with him. You have his righteousness. End of 13. He's forgiven us all our trespasses. Do you think that demoniac liked hearing the idea that all of his trespasses had been forgiven? I can't say, I don't have any demons in me, Lord willing, praise God. But you know what I can say about my sins? Their name is Legion. Legion. So many sins. Jesus paid the price for my sins. Verse 14, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. The cross fundamentally broke that slavery to evil for God's people. So just like this demoniac, we repent of our sin, we trust Jesus, we find ourselves with a new identity in him. We find ourselves belonging to him. We find true freedom there. We're finally in Christ in our right mind. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're at peace with God. Does the struggle with evil remain? Yes, for sure. But the power of evil in your life, if you belong to Jesus, is fundamentally broken and one day will be undone forever. Dark reality, ultimate authority, incredible mercy. Now your story. That's verses 15 and following. As usual with Mark, he tells us who Jesus is and some of what he came to do. And then there's always this push, how are you gonna respond? You can't just hear this and think that was amazing. No, God's calling you to respond. What are you gonna do with this news? And there's two examples at the end of this story that one's a warning, the other's an invitation. First, the example of this community. What is this community seeing either with their own eyes or according to the witnesses? This 
terror on their community. This man has been totally rehabilitated and restored. The evidence being the herd of pigs is floating in the ocean. And it's absolute evidence right in front of them on who Jesus is. And he has saved their community from this danger, this evil. What would you think their response should be? I mean, if you raise your kids right, somebody does something for you, what are, you, what are they supposed to say? Hey, I've done this before, right? Say thank you. Thank you. Or if you're, if you're paying attention at all, and you live in this place, you might be like, Jesus, tell me more. Tell me more about who you are and what's going on and why you're here. I, I want to know more. I want to get closer. Wouldn't you think? What do they ask him to do? Verse 16, those who had seen what happened described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What a picture of the human heart. People say, well, if I just had evidence, I would believe. I'm not so sure. The heart wants what it wants. You know, their rejection of Jesus is tied to their fear, and here's how I would describe it. They realize, right, and they can't argue it, they're in the presence of the Holy Son of God. And when you come close, yeah, you see beauty and you see glory, but there's almost like a threat that grabs you. And here's the threat. If you're going to stay here, you have to change. If you're going to come here, you have to change. You can't live for all that like you used to anymore. You have to confess your own evil. You have to bow the knee. You have to trust this man. He has to be your king. He has to be your everything. He has to be all of it. He has to be the treasure if you're going to stay here. And when the heart says, I don't want to give it all up for him. I know I saw him, but I don't want to give it all up for him. I'm going to go back and we tell him to leave. And here's their story. It's so ironic. They remain enslaved. Do you see how this story ends? It isn't just the the demon-possessed man who's enslaved in this story. Ironically, the demon-possessed man is now free to follow Jesus and the community Religious, not nearly so messed up as that guy. They remain enslaved. And when we reject Jesus, that's our story. Friends, your your story is defined. Your story is defined most fundamentally by how you respond to Jesus. How easy or hard your life was, how many kids you had, what your job was like this, that, the other thing, how long you lived, et cetera. It's it's all important. We care. It, It doesn't really define you. What defines you is your response to Jesus. It defines you eternally. So your story, we don't want to be the one who says, Jesus, that was cool, but I don't want to bow my knee to you. We finish with this. Look at the response of the demoniac. 
Jesus is getting back into the boat. I mean, amazing. His, his, his work is done. He made the trip across the lake. They all felt like they were going to die. We got here. We met our man. He's good now. Back in the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. There's a lot of begging in this story. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. You know, that's so beautiful. What's a better picture of the Christian life than that? Do you see? This is a man who's experienced the mercy of the Holy Son of God. And all he wants, what does he want? I just want to be with you. That's it. That's Christianity right there. Jesus, I just want to be close to you. I want to see you and be right with you. I want to obey you, follow you, love you, know you. That's all I want. Let me be close to you. And guess what? This man will be close to Jesus forever and ever. Amen. He's close to Jesus right now. But for this moment, Jesus doesn't let him get in the boat. What does he tell him to do? Verse 19. Jesus is saying, there's more people who need my mercy. And so he says to this guy, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Don't you wish you could hear that conversation? Don't you wish you could know how this guy had friends and ended up living naked in the tombs? And then, and then, you know, what's it like when he comes and knocks on your door and you open up and you're like, it's him. Should I be concerned? Oh, you're wearing clothes. This is good. And the guy says, I, I got a story to tell you. Sit down. Did you hear about what happened to those pigs? And he tells his friends what the Lord has done for him. Go and tell. And if you're a Christian, you don't have the same details as this guy. But don't you have the same story? Were you enslaved to sin? Did you deserve God's wrath? Were you coming undone? Did Jesus show you mercy? And has he brought you near? If you've come to Jesus with repentance and faith, that's your story. And guess what he wants you to do with your story? Church, some of you need to ask this of yourself. You need to ask this of yourself. When was the last time I told somebody about what Jesus has done for me? For some of us, it's been way too long. Tell that story. So what are we supposed to see about Jesus against the backdrop of evil? Oh, evil's real and worse than we ever thought. We can't control it, but he has ultimate authority over evil. He's the son of God and he, and he pours out incredible mercy on those who have done evil and been ravaged by evil. So we want to come to him with faith, be near him, live for him, knowing that one day evil will be ended and we will enjoy the face of our Lord Jesus forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful portrait of Jesus we have been able to see in this passage. And I pray that we would be awake to our own story, each one of us. Lord, we, we grieve the ravages of evil all around us. 
And we thank you that the Bible isn't lying to us about that. It's, it's real. It's worse than we thought. And we've been a part of it. So we thank you for Jesus that he would come all this way to show us such incredible mercy that he would live the life we couldn't live, that he died on the cross in our place, that he rose from the dead, that he's king, that he reigns, that one day evil will be ended. We pray that our hearts would just be filled with this desire to be with you, to know you, to love you, and to live for you until you return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.